0: Welcome to season four of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches, and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change, because this is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I'm therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, mums will continue to struggle burn out and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone. So I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. This week, I'm learning from Jago Brown, who has three children. At his company Lead 50 50, he is developing an accreditation process for other companies to work towards gender equality. He's also a trustee at Equality Starts at Home, which is a charity set up to look at the difficulties inequality in the home has on many people and the knock-on effects to their work life. At home, he and his wife use a system to help them support each other in household and childcare tasks. Jago has a deep understanding of how to create equality and reminds us that one of the biggest benefits of equality for men is improved mental health. Jago was solo parenting the night I interviewed him and struggling to get the kids to bed. And his daughter comes into the interview at the perfect time to talk about his dad jokes. Jago lives in Glasgow, Scotland, but has a very English accent, but his daughter has a very Scottish accent. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did.
1: My name is Jago Brown. I am a working dad. I've got three kids. They are both seven and five. I live with my wife, Sarah, in the outskirts of Glasgow in Scotland in the UK I'm originally from London but I moved here about 20 years ago and um, so I'm currently got a few hats that I wear So I work mostly in a business which does international summer camps for kids. We mostly do English language camps for children from all over the world. Also, I am working on an accreditation, a gender quality accreditation for a a company called Lead 55th, which was set up to get women into leadership roles and also to include men in the conversation. And I'm a trustee at Equality Starts at Home, which is a charity set up to look at the difficulties inequality in the home has on many people and the knock-on effects to their work life.
0: So great. Thank you so much for that introduction. So let's start right there. Roll strain and too many hats can lead to burnout. Have you experienced burnout previously in your life and how are you coping now with these different roles? Yes, it's
1: interesting. I wasn't sure exactly what burnout is. And I realised that from listening a bit to you, of understanding a bit more about it. I think I've been in some difficult situations. So the most dark one was in 2016. We had two kids at the time. Our third was on the way. It meant we had to get a new house and I was in a very difficult role at the time. I was the MD of, of a business of about 150 people going through a massive change. And it was part of a very big company. So there were pressures of all types on me at the time. And we were moving house one weekend. There's a lot going on and we moved on the Friday. And on the Monday I woke up and I couldn't speak, couldn't do anything really. And so th- three months then I was off work trying to piece back together how I felt. And it's anxiety and anxiety I've lived with, lived alongside ever since and had to learn how to manage it. And so is that burnout? Probably. Life has been hard since. We know the signs to look for if I'm starting to struggle. I know what to do now. And occasionally I get overwhelmed with all the things that are going on. I think what's interesting is recently, though, all the work I'm doing and I've got a lot on, I'm actually not feeling the same because I feel like I've got the psychological safety, I think, which you talk about, which I probably didn't have in parts of my life at the time. So I'm really enjoying, I'm feeling that I've found a purpose. And a a real passion for the work that I'm doing now and the businesses that I'm in and the the groups I'm with work really hard on communication and really hard on how we work together as a team and creating that safety within us. So, yes, it's a lot on. Yes, having three kids is hard. And day to day, I can have some hard days. But I think at the moment, uh, not feeling burnout, but I'm certain I've been there before by the sound of it.
0: Yes. And thanks for that example, because it really helps people when they understand what it may be some of the symptoms. And I think particularly what I relate to and what you said is experiencing anxiety as a grown person who had never experienced it before. And that was one of the symptoms I had. I started to have panic attacks and I had never had those in my life. And so I didn't know how to deal with them. And so that was what was fascinating is how we do learn to manage and how you also manage the symptoms, like you recognize the symptoms early. So I think that's also important because burnout recovery is in some ways just managing burnout for however long. It could be the foreseeable future. If we tend to be the type of person that takes on a lot, then yeah, it's going to happen again. But like you say, seeing the signs and especially if your family can see the signs and point them out to you, that can really help.
1: Sarah's very good at that so I feel like I'm going to live alongside it for a long time I don't know if you feel the same and I don't think it you know restrains me very much I didn't talk about very much for a long time but then more people started talking about their mental health and it helps so I started talking about it a bit more being more open it helps to know I think it helps if you're working with me or know me or know people then it helps to understand people doesn't it
0: that's such an important perspective. I agree. Talking about it is so important. Leaders talking about it and us all in society talking about it is definitely helpful. But yeah, in that work situation, you would want to know the type of person you're working with if they do tend to have burnout because you would pay more attention to the number of tasks or their over-giving nature and you would make sure you didn't exploit that, I hope, when you're working with the right people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It does make a difference. And previously, I was in an environment where that was borderline, maybe toxic, but really hardcore, very difficult, didn't really understand no, no understanding of personal needs or family life or anything, anything like that was quite hard. So there was no space for it there.
0: So that's a perfect segue into my next question then. Describe a little more what role you are playing at home and at work. You called yourself a working dad and how did you get there?
1: So I've always been fascinated by why I was never called a working dad because we call women working mothers a lot and this didn't seem to be the concept of a working dad. I realised it's because we don't expect dads to be doing that and we expect every woman who has got kids, who has also got a job to be doing that. So when Sarah and I met, I'd lived lived alone for 12 years. So I was 30 at the time. And so I got used to living independently. Didn't see why I would go back to living not independently or depending on somebody. So we always treated our relationship very equally and as a team. But we worked really hard early on at communication skills. We learned a lot from each other. We say thank you for everything all the time it's something Sarah did a lot and I thought was quite strange but actually it makes perfect sense thanking each other is incredibly important and we had things like when we were cooking we'd have a head chef so the head chef says what to do and then the other one just does what they said so we never argued because one person head chef head chef next day so that's how we kept going throughout our life and then obviously things get a little hard with kids and then We get older and more senior at work. It all gets a little bit tougher. We didn't have the concept of shared parental leave in the UK. So really an option for men at that time. And very rare that men would do shared parental leave. So... Those maternity leave times, I felt always that it shifted a lot and it became unequal. Didn't love that. Felt like a lot of the pressure was on her. And then and actually, as a dad, having a child and going back to work two weeks later, that's a rough time for everybody because that's not really what you want to do at that time. And then as we had more kids, we just got better and better at communication and systems. We have lots of systems in place. We use, for big projects, we have a project management system, which people think strange. I don't think that's strange. I think we're all brilliant at delegating and managing projects and managing stuff at work, and then we seem to go home and think you can't use the same theories, and we didn't do that. So then, so in 2019, I left that role that I was talking about that I was uncomfortable and hadn't really realized it. And I took a year off to be with the kids. So I was when stay-at-home dad. So I got quite a lot of more experience of parenting and then particularly of men's role in parenting then. And then the lockdown came. So in the UK, we were locked down from sort of March, 2020. And then my wife's a doctor. So she was back in the ward. So I was at home quite a lot there. And then in early 2021, Uh, Sarah's diagnosed with breast cancer so she had about 15 months or so of treatment finished a couple of months ago and so I then took another year to look after her my employer was great just said just go spend time with the family we were again back in lockdown at that point as well there was no other help we could get because we were just in the house so I experienced then some time with all the kids and then as a carer but not working at the time then I've gained a massive understanding and respect for people that are caring long term for other people and have other responsibilities. I don't know how people manage financially. We were fortunate because of our employers. Other people, I think, less so got a big and interesting view of the world there. And I think to where we are now is we've both spent time on our own. We both travel for work. So we don't have defined roles in the home necessarily. We see it more as shift work because someone's on shift and then I'll be away for a week. She's away for a week at the moment. You've got to do everything. So we have never really split our jobs there, which means you've got to do everything. I think the most important thing I think we've always talked about is the mental load. and So not just the physical work in the home, the emotional labor, the third shift, all that stuff. We talk about a lot. And so we've always shared that and had little systems for that. So a party invitation comes in, we know what to do. You put it on the kitchen, you reply, you write on the card that you've replied, you do that, and then you go and buy the present. So those little things we've done, and we've always done, we have always worked quite hard at it. So I think where we are now is we know that it ebbs and flows because of life and our positions and the work we're doing and whether we've had another kid and all those things. But actually, it's been pretty equal for a long time. And I think it's made us very understanding of each other and very happy, actually, to be fair.
0: Thank you so much. That's just such a up and down story. And that's what life is. So I really appreciate that. There's so many parts of that. I really believe that dads or men who have played a caregiving role, either as a father or as a caregiver to a sick family member or friend, I think you are the ones that are going to be able to change the world because you're in situations where you do unfortunately still have more power in the workplace, in government Situations at the moment. But if you've had this experience, and like you said, you learned so much from actually having to do it. And that's the experience that I want men to take back into the workplace and to inform the leadership and the decisions, their policies they're making. I really appreciate that you've had both of those types of experiences. And I agree, those ebbs and flows, my husband this time last year, Broke his leg just as I was about to get my shift of mum being away for a week. And it never happened. And I haven't had it yet. So it's one of those things, right? Life happens. But I think your first point about the thank yous is so important. If anyone's heard my story or my TEDx talk before, that was really where my husband and I broke down is I didn't thank him for taking my daughter to the pediatrician to an appointment that I had always taken her to and that I had set up. And he was so proud because it was the first time he'd done it. I couldn't bring myself to say thank you. And this was like one of the lowest points because of the fight that resulted from that and the things that were said that were very true about who I was and what I was doing. And now we do. We say thank you for everything. If he gets the kids up, thanks for getting the kids up today. If he makes breakfast, just absolutely everything. And I agree, it makes so much sense. And it's so strange to me to think that I just couldn't do it before. I was so resentful. and. I was just like, nobody thanks me for one. And two, this is your freaking job too. Why do I have to thank you for doing it? But now it's like everything that does help especially again when I experienced that time where he was stuck in the chair couldn't even go to the bathroom for a certain uh, amount of time I'm really grateful when he then is fully functioning and able to help because it really taught me how much he did do that I didn't notice as well so I'm totally with that thank you I feel
1: bad now because I missed a little bit out of the story That's unfair on Sarah. Just before she used diapers of cancer, I had a hip replacement. So she had weeks of me not being able to move or bend down pre-Christmas. I feel like I should definitely mention that now you've mentioned yours and his leg. That was obviously to do everything then for me.
0: And that's reminding me too, when my husband broke his shoulder, when my daughter was still in nappies and diapers. So tell me a little bit more about that organizations you're working for because I really want to understand what you're doing at these organizational and policy levels to support both dads, mums as parents or equality or caregiving because quite often a lot of the conversations we have around these things either are about yes what you can do as a couple and I agree that the shift type work works for my husband and I better too than us necessary sharing tasks but like That's what individuals can do. But what can organisations and what can we do at that upper level of policy and if it's also touching on culture, what are you doing there in the work you're doing and how does it all work?
1: So if we take... Equality starts at home is a charity specifically so set up during the pandemic. One of the founders, Claire, probably did a presentation about it, and it sparked some interest, and some people got together, and they wanted to talk about the fact that it affects women. So the stats are pretty strong, actually, aren't they? That globally, women are doing eighty percent of the emotional labour in the home, and doing somewhere between sixty-five and seventy percent of the unpaid work. Unpaid work would be worth trillions are to GDPs and is not put in GDP and breastfeeding not in GDP and all these things missing from the economy and then the understanding is missing and that if you're the one doing that then your opportunities are affected. Your opportunities to advance are affected there are wage gaps that develop from it but actually it's pensions because and i don't know what the stats are for everywhere but say in uk for example i think men retire on five times the pension pot on average than women and there's a link there's a link there to what's happening at home and the expectations and there's a massive societal expectations over who does what in the home and whether you should or shouldn't the biggest problems is actually men don't get penalized by society for not doing stuff Home, women do get penalized. So it's very difficult for women to say, you do it then, because there's no comeback to men. So, what we try and talk about is the positives, though. I suppose that's the negatives. We're looking for cultural change. We're looking for, you know, societal change for people to understand. And we've just launched a merger with a company called Third Shift. And Third Shift is a household balance calculator. So, this is a good example. We want to create resources. We want to open the conversation. We want men to talk more because they've got to be part of the conversation. Um, And if you take the household balance calculator, you'll get an insight. It takes a few minutes. You'll get an insight into the amount of hours of work that needs to be done and how much you're doing and what you're doing and how you could maybe change it. So it's worth going there to take that quiz to see what we're trying to do. And I suppose on a governmental level, there's changes that are needed, I think. We definitely, we understand the issue of childcare and we would support changes to childcare and provisions. I think things like the shared parental leave is one that keeps coming up a lot um, and more countries putting in something like a uh, use it or lose it scheme for shared parental leave would make a tremendous difference. I don't know a lot about it, but I know in the US it's quite a different least with maternity and paternity leave but if you look at the UK we have shared parental rights so men are able to do it partners are able to do it but the take-up is just under two percent at the moment of men doing it in Sweden there's a use it or lose it scheme so if you want to take nine months and most companies pay you fully the take-up's 90 percent And so I don't think there's a fundamental difference in society between Sweden and the UK, for example. So pushing for those things, I think, is really important. I suppose on an organisational level, that's where I do a lot of work with Lead 5050. So our accreditation is really to look at all of the, the, I suppose there's an intersection of home life and how that affects work life. But there's also things that only happen in work. And it's interesting, we speak to lots of companies and we're really trying to open up a discussion about how you close gender pay gaps first of all what gender pay gaps are because most people don't understand how they're calculated or what they are or what they mean so it allows people to say that they're a myth and they don't exist they do exist but they're very different to what most people think they are globally women are 50 percent of the workforce 30 percent of managers 20 percent of boards five percent of ceos there's a drop-off there and it's not just because of discrimination in fact most of the time it's not discrimination pay gaps are not discrimination that's been proved, actually. It's just inequality, systemized societal issues. And so we help businesses, organizations to find out what's happening. We take a lot of data, we use that data, we attach it to some of the best research around the world to try and understand, because it's really complicated, And the example I often give is a go-to strategy is to put flexible working in. But in the UK, I talk a lot about the UK. I realise your listenership is not UK-based. In the UK, flexible working is a legal requirement. So all companies have one. You have the right to ask for it. Men are five times less likely to get a flexible working request agreed. So women get flexible working which keeps women less visible less in the office less likely to get the tasks that men get because they're in the office so less likely to be promoted and because men don't get flexible working their wives have to do it so they need the flexible working so they end up working flexibly so the cycle continues actually the pay gaps will get worse this year or certainly over the next couple of years because there are fewer women probably now going into leadership roles because of this push for flexible working. And men are more likely to be brought back to the office, basically. So we help companies understand that thing. And the reason for that is that only 24% of managers are trained on flexible working on how to listen to and deal with the flexible working requests. So we work at that level with businesses. We ask hundreds of questions of them and the policies and processes. We ask all their people questions to understand how they feel about whether certain policies are in place and whether they feel like they can raise certain things. And so we then attach it to all the research and we help them to make those positive changes. And actually lots of people we speak to, they get that having diversity of thoughts gets you to make better decisions it makes sense to most people and but they genuinely don't know how to do it they don't know how to get more women into leadership roles and i should say it's not just women we see the inequality as a symptom of a company not being in its best state and that inequality it's just gender is the easiest one to see it's the easiest symptom to diagnose so actually where a lot of our policies and implementations and recommendations will be very supportive of of other intersectionalities so it's not just about gender that's where we are at the moment trying to make organizational change there and then inequality starts at home and trying to be on that intersection of the home environment
0: Thank you so much for all those details. And again, I really appreciate the UK example because definitely it's important for us here in the US to hear these examples from around the world. I had a colleague telling me about parental leave mandates in Denmark that just got passed. So again, we need these examples to show, as you say, the, the beast, which is the American process here. I really appreciate the connection that you mentioned between pensions or retirement benefits and the how that leaves so many women in poverty and poor health. It's such a problem for older women. That is definitely something that we need to be thinking about. And even to be reminded that the UK has the legal requirement of considering flex work. But as you say, the numbers are showing that it's not equally applied. And even just your statement about it's not discrimination, it's inequality. And I really appreciated the example you gave of the flex time to demonstrate that. Because as you say, it's not just that men are not given this flexibility. It has knock-on effects for their partners. And I think this is such an important one where we're at in this time. Like you said, in the next couple of years, what is going to happen in terms of proximity bias and the problems there? So it sounds like You may have kind of earlier understanding of that in the UK pre-COVID because of these requirements to have flex. And I think those negative consequences of policies are so important to understand, again, In academia, where I was based for so long, there is an opportunity to have your tenure, your promotion clock paused as a parent. When universities allow both parents to do that, women are looking after the child and men are still working on their academic work. So they actually make advancements with that and the inequality gets greater. So you're saying that the flex work may be increasing inequalities. Tell us a little bit more about then what companies can do to try and off set that what is your recommendations is it just that we got to get more men doing it too or the other things that companies can do to mitigate proximity bias
1: i think yes to get more men doing it yes but there's limits to what a company can do for that so they need the support and one of the problems we've got still is there's a financial decision there and the financial decision is the difficult one and often the financial decision it keeps one person in work and because if you've children any child at all if you're a man you're more likely to be the greater financially earner so companies organizations can change the culture i think we ask them to be curious about the data we ask them to be curious about what's really happening and i suppose because we go in like you said saying we don't think this is discrimination yep yeah, there is some discrimination there's no doubt about that but most of it isn't and most of it is inequality from lots of other factors that aren't you you haven't done this we've all done this together and this is how we should look at it so I think changing the culture normalizing it expecting it expecting men to be part of the process supporting men to do it because actually having been a stay-at-home dad it's a very female environment it's not easy to break into there's bias there as well so I experienced lots of bias and sexism i'm not disadvantaged by it because i'm a man but it doesn't mean it's not there and it's not keeping men from doing it so it's important that we understand that so when companies get involved in that part and they've got to model that behavior so they've got to start with prominent people doing the same thing modeling that behavior they can change and i think organizations themselves so the way they can then support it is They can have things like male support groups. They can have parenting groups that encourage men to be part of it. They can start male ally groups. There's some good research data around what they can do both for men and for women. I focus a lot on the problem, and the problem is affecting women. But I focus a lot on why men would do it. And there's loads of reasons why men would want to do this. There's loads of benefits to men of equality of gender. So I focus a lot on that and organizations will get more from their workforce you'll get better engaged people and I think the stats are pretty good about that exactly how to do it still hard people don't really know but I would say that things like male support groups and parenting groups and, and encouraging men to talk about it because that's where men dipping their toe in the water to start doing more parenting that they will come up against bias and blocks they will I talked to a lot of men about it and that's how you feel so you need support to get through that We're all capable of doing it, but there are some difficulties.
0: It's a difficult question. That's why I ask it, because systems change and organizational change. These things are difficult, but I also put them down to saying, well, they're decisions that people make, right? And we can decide to adopt policies and we can decide to enforce them in certain ways. I definitely understand that financial challenge and I think that's the other piece of when you think about the pay gap too is that men can then go away and negotiate a higher salary somewhere else as well and women necessarily be able to come back with a higher salary because again it's the market rate for what women are paid to a certain extent so these come from so many areas these inequalities so I understand that.
1: I think from from an organisational point of view we've got loads more lots stronger data and recommendations around things like recruitment and about cultivating people's careers and, and how you do all that. And so there's good evidence that mentoring doesn't work or doesn't move the dial it's because you need sponsorship. You need people that go and find other people rather than people that self-select. There's loads of things you can do in the recruitment process. I just think the bit around getting men to be part of it, which is definitely needed to change the societal bit, is more difficult for an organization to do because it's a societal issue not just an organizational issue there's absolutely loads that the organizations can do when they've got the data and the detail to do there's just that bit's a bit more of a conundrum i think
0: Yeah, and when these do intersect with social biases, and it's always what's the chicken and egg of this as well. (laughs) What do we start first? But I definitely believe that role models and champions of these things are, are such important places to start because it is with individuals can take the power that they have to do this out loud. And then that does influence other people. And that's how change at least starts. So I definitely think that's important. You mentioned some of the benefits that you like to lead with for dads as well. So that's obviously going to be part of a persuasive argument. So could you maybe just share some of those in case there's dads listening that haven't really had them? The
1: biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK is suicide. And men are struggling with lots of things, seemingly. And I think there seems to be good evidence that Having an equal home makes everyone happier. It gives you a better relationship with your kids. That makes you more comfortable. The more you do it, the more comfortable you are doing it, and therefore you have a better relationship. There's good evidence that is also then better for your kids. I talk to men that are not involved very much in home life, and they feel excluded, and they feel unable to do it, and... Whether it started with them not getting involved and not wanting to, where it is now after years of marriage, it it is a different place. And it's difficult and very difficult to break down all those structures that have built up for years. So they feel completely excluded, blamed, not able to make a change now. When they get involved, they do it wrong, those sorts of things. If you really approach it and take time to understand it and work hard at it and your partner is willing to do that with you, then... I think you can just be a lot happier. You can just be a lot happier. And then strains on men to be breadwinners is there's toxic work cultures. The culture of overworking affects men because they're in this feeling of, I've got to be the breadwinner. It's much better for their mental health that they get off that cycle and get into a more relaxed, more flexible environment so that they can spend more time with family, or not just family, doing the things they want to do, which often men don't either do. And all of that understanding... Allows men to talk. So I, I suppose that's it. That's the bit I focus on. The problem affects women financially and in the workplace, but actually it doesn't make men happy.
0: I really appreciate that connection specifically given the topic of my podcast here on Burnout. I can really see how you've laid that out in terms of that overwork cycle and then the lack of connection with your family and then the lack of ability to get support and talk about it leads to more of the overwork. Whereas when you say, okay, let's move out of overwork to being able to be connected part of your family. And like you say... It's going to improve your mental health, but also it's going to improve, you know, your ability to connect and what connection is. And like you say, you'll be talking more and you'll have these different experiences. But I agree, it needs support and it needs the mums to provide support to do that. And I think that's something that I don't think we do realize enough is how, how much we have excluded the men from that environment. And I don't know that it was intentional. So it's back to what you said, but it is the situation, right? So again, that is exactly the situation is, men are excluded from these environments, right? Whether we intended to do it, but the point is if they do want to change and if we want things to change, then yes, that's part of it. I always feel that's the same with all these situations. We have to make space for somebody else to do it. And it's not that we're going to lose out. It's that the pie is going to get bigger. We've all got to share. It's such a challenge.
1: It goes back a bit to what I said at the start about the the delegation. We don't approach the home-like work. We delegate brilliantly and we've got all sorts of systems and we can do so much in the workplace. And then we go home and try and do it a little bit more random and don't want those systems and don't want that communication. don't quite get that. But my wife always, when people ask For advice, when having a kid, she used to say the same thing, don't make it your project. Because if you do that, you can exclude your partner quite quickly. There's a sort of myth about about women being maternal and when it comes to parenting, they just know better than men, which I get to a certain point for a few weeks. But after that, parenting is a long job of many years of many different challenges if you don't do any of it you won't learn how to do it and we're all making mistakes so don't make it your project because if your partner doesn't get involved they then won't know what to do don't know how to settle the kid don't know how to do the other stuff don't know which yogurt to get all that stuff matters and if you don't spend any time doing it then you won't be able to do it because you haven't learnt all those skills have you it's a learnt skill parenting and that narrative isn't helpful to anyone that women are just automatically better at every part of parenting just doesn't help anyone I don't think but that's it Sarah keeps saying, don't make it your project, because you could do that quite easily. And then you've excluded the person you started a cycle of not giving each other the support you could be
0: giving. And I'm glad you came back to your home systems. I love that because I do. I think it's so important. Sometimes it's a situation of me constantly having to remind my husband of something. And I'm thinking, I bet nobody has to do this at work for you. So again, it's like just a slightly different expectation that we need to set up. I know it sounds miserable, although I like systems and I would love to run the home like a workplace project system because I'd be so happy. And in fact, one of my conversations with my Danish colleague, he said they even had rules about coffee and cake in Denmark. I'm like, I'd be happy there because I love systems and rules because for me, it just eases my life. It makes it clear and that helps me. But again, why is it that we think of a home? Do you want it to be... Fun and relaxed, and but at the same time, it is like bringing up kids is a job. It's work.
1: Yeah, and w- when I talk about it, it sounds like it's really regimented. It's not regimented. It's a bit like the saying thank you to each other all the time is a sort of innate rule. Things like when we pack to go on holiday, one person packs and we both do it, and then the other person then, as we're about to go or an hour before we go, say right, they have to just shout out things that we should have packed. And so when you leave the house, you've both done it because both people had an opportunity to pack everything. So if you forget something, it's no one's fault and there's never an argument. That I don't think is particularly difficult to put in place. So it's little things like that that we also do just to stop flashpoints that you could have. And So you could easily see that going another way. You didn't pack that. Well, you didn't. Why didn't you pack at all? That, that could start a problem. But we've both been responsible because of our, the system that we have. So, it's stuff like that. So, yes, there's spreadsheets, and yes, there's a project management system for big projects, but the day to day is just writing certain things. And I think a lot of it is the emotional labor we talk about a lot. So, I'm very keen if you're home, you open the school bags, you look at the emails. That's another problem that our school didn't allow more than one parent to be on the email until last year and so basically one email goes to one person you've got no chance if all the communications come to one person that one person is going to have to do it aren't they with the best will in the world so we were like how are we supposed to do this so then if you're not on all the whatsapp groups all the parenting stuff all those things the tacit stuff just going around so-and-so's party he's going to have a lift here if you're not in it you've got no chance and it will all go through one person so that's a way to do it I think it makes us happier because we work at that and we both feel responsible and we both feel valued and valuable and of course we make loads of mistakes parenting like I'm struggling the bit today trying to get the kids to bed but doesn't mean we're great at it but at least we're equally as bad maybe that's the best way
0: That's perfect. And again, that's such a good example, because to me, again, it feels like you're just leveraging the diversity of thought too, in the right ways. And again, we know diversity works. So it's just a microscope, a microcosm of diversity of thought in the home. It's so important. So since we're laughing at how bad you both are, um, let's end with your favourite dad joke, if you've got one ready for me.
1: Yeah, so this is the most difficult question. I went back to Or is a dad joke? See, I haven't got like a pun. Dad jokes are supposed to be not very funny. Usually a pun. My favourite one isn't a pun. So it's not very good. So I'll tell you one, which is every time I see anything that's camouflage, I pretend it's not there. So if if a kid is wearing camouflage trousers. so, So stuff like that, I think, is the best dad joke. So you can just keep using the same thing all the time
2: where's your trousers it
1: really frustrates them and it then it gets funny because i've so overused it
2: oh i love
0: it
1: that is my best one but that's not a pun
0: oh no i don't think it has to be a pun i've had all sorts given to me and i'm loving this process of asking this dad question
1: yeah i know here's an example of my not able to is he telling his camouflage joke? Yes, he told me the camouflage joke. I do, I do it a lot, don't it's I? It's school bag, and it's camouflage. I thought, where's your skill bag? That's on? it. I did say they've got a new school, it's camouflage, and I pretend we can't see it every day. That's what I think that sort of dad comedy is, isn't it? Just the same, same poor, dragged out sort like, of jokes that one line is, it's like saying them. there's not much room if you're trying to put mushrooms in that sort of thing I do a lot and they oh it's the mushroom joke again that's what I think a good dad joke is
0: all my stereotypes of asking about dad jokes as though all dad jokes have to be bad but unfortunately in our house they are and the kids love them too and so it's we're talking about serious stuff here and at some point we have to appreciate that we all need dad jokes yes
1: I, I actually I looked it up on Wikipedia it does say they have to be bad So you're all right there, according to Wikipedia. So that's good enough for me.
0: Because kids always say, are there mum jokes? And I was like, no, all mum's jokes are good. So there's no mum jokes that can be the same as dad jokes.
1: Mums don't do that same thing.
0: So appreciate your time today. If you've got any last words, uh, let me know. As you say, you had some great advice there about don't make it your project from your wife. What would be your advice to dads?
1: So that's Um, interesting. So first of all, go to third shift, take the quiz, whatever position you think you're in. I'm not saying all dads aren't doing this. Some dads I know are stay at home dads. I know they do a lot. So I'm not going to judge, but go to third shift and do the quiz just to find out. It's really interesting regardless, even if you just realize how much work you're doing. And then I suppose the stats would point me to say, like I said earlier, if you want to be happier, get more involved in the mental load, get on the WhatsApp groups. If you're not taking those initiatives, do it, delegate to yourself, do stuff that you wouldn't normally have done because you might find that you unconsciously are not doing as much as your partner's doing. All the data is there that if you get more involved and talk about it, you're much more likely to protect your mental health. So it's a win-win.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com, for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and, like you, are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone? and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress. In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, greater accountability, and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The Peer Learning Collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, The group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan-do-study-act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation with a recession looming Post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a Peer Learning Collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12 week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, Identifying and operationalizing key change levers, using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems. Leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change, using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging, using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. (laughs)
2: Oh, <laughs> I feel the